Amazon Prime Day is here. Two days of epic deals. Let it change your kitchen, change your yard, change your game. Even change the way you celebrate. Okay, hang on a second. So first of all, Prime Day is two days now. Amazon cannot even accept the limits. It's set on its own completely made up holiday that it only started in 2015. Here on Primed, however, we of course observe the holiday, which is taking place this year on June 21st and 22nd. So I thought I'd talk about Prime Day before we get to the main interview for this episode. It was rolled out in 2015 to commemorate 20 years of Amazon and 10 years of Amazon Prime. Prime Day lasted all of two years before it started expanding. In 2017, it went on for 30 hours and more countries joined in. In 2018, Prime Day lasted 36 hours. By 2019, Prime Day was 48 hours and encompassed 18 countries. That was the year Taylor Swift headlined what was called the Prime Day Concert, a live stream people, of course, could naturally watch on Amazon Prime Video, and which was a very strange event full of plugs for Amazon products and TV shows. I wanted to say a special shout out to, you know, everybody here. It's so sick to, to see you here. But we also we also know that we have what it's like 200 countries all over the world are watching this on Amazon Prime Video. So hey guys, anybody's watching this, wherever wherever you are in the world, we really appreciate you watching this and wanting to see this show. I want to say thank you so much to Amazon for having us all. To be clear, by this point, we're talking about 175 million items purchased and sales in the billions of dollars. What is Prime Day now? Well, for consumers, it is still about deals. And for workers, it is, in fact, still about mandatory overtime, with shifts extended from 10 to 12 hours and extra shifts added. One worker told me recently that he'll be mandated to work 55 hours this week. That worker says he's in pain and a doctor told him that he has carpal tunnel. But he hasn't formally filed with Amazon any information about this condition because he has to go to a different doctor and get diagnosed and he does not have time to do that. A former lower-level manager at an Amazon warehouse told me she was pressured to work for over 24 hours straight on Prime Day. So for hundreds of thousands of people working for Amazon in the warehouses, Prime Week is a huge headache, and sometimes it's dangerous. Let's look at the numbers we have on this. So Amazon is notoriously secretive about its data, especially data on working conditions. While workers inside the warehouses have long said these jobs are dangerous, no one has had extensive numbers until recently. In 2019, and then in a follow-up in 2020, journalist Will Evans looked into the records and published his findings with Reveal News. Here's Evans talking on PBS about the 2020 findings. We found workers exposed to a gas leak in a Southern California warehouse, and a man crushed to death by a forklift in Indiana. That reporting led to sources giving Reveal a trove of documents, never before made public. Four years of weekly injury numbers for more than 150 Amazon fulfillment centers nationwide, along with hundreds of pages of Amazon's internal safety memos. These documents give an unprecedented look into how many workers have been injured and how Amazon is responding. According to Amazon's own records, last year it had more than 14,000 serious injuries meaning the injury prevented the worker from doing their usual job. The rate of these injuries was nearly twice the industry average. 
Evans's 2020 report showed that Prime Day 2019 was the year's most dangerous week for injuries at Amazon fulfillment centers, with nearly 400 serious injuries recorded across the country. Here's what Evans wrote. Just five months earlier, in June 2019, the monthly report from the Amazon safety director in charge of robotic warehouses across the country was frank about the risks. Warehouses in the region that encompasses New Jersey, New York, Maryland, and Connecticut were, quote, expecting an increase in injuries across all sites during Prime Week. Injuries had already increased in the ramp-up to Prime Day, a trend Evans attributes to mandatory overtime and bringing in 1,200 to 2,000 seasonal employees to each robotic site in the region. Both the overtime and the influx of new workers were labeled, quote, high-risk situations. It's worth going into detail about Evans's reporting because it's about as comprehensive as anyone has gotten when it comes to injuries in these warehouses, not just on Prime Day. His 2019 investigation looked at internal injury records from 2018 for 23 of the company's then 110 U.S. warehouses. They found the rate of serious injuries for the facilities whose records they had was more than double the national average for the warehousing industry. 9.6 serious injuries per 100 full-time workers compared with an industry average that year of four. And those rates are very uneven. One of the warehouses in Eastvale, California, had a rate four times the national average. And of the records reveal obtained, most of the warehouses with the highest rates of injury deployed robots. Seriously. While Jeff Wilkie, one of Amazon's top executives, has said that robots, quote, make the job safer, the truth is robots increase, not decrease, injury rates. David Michaels, former head of the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, better known as OSHA, called the rates, quote, alarmingly unacceptably high. And those were Amazon's own records. But Amazon, like many companies, is prone to keeping injuries off the books so as not to attract scrutiny, whether from OSHA or from people like Evans, as well as to minimize workers' comp claims. Investigators have found that Amcare, Amazon's on-site clinics often send injured workers back to work instead of referring them to another clinic or doctor for in-depth medical attention. Medical providers told Will Evans in his reporting that they were discouraged from giving Amazon workers any treatment that would lead those injuries to being on the books. So if anything, these numbers are an undercount. And these aren't just repetitive stress injuries or little strains and sprains. As Evans writes... Quote, when a gas leak inundated the Eastvale warehouse where Dixon used to work, managers wouldn't slow down, several workers said, even though they were dizzy and vomiting. They were told that they'd have to use personal time off if they wanted to leave. He also documents something really horrifying. 59-year-old Philip Lee Terry, a maintenance worker, was crushed to death by a forklift at an Indiana Amazon warehouse. The state OSHA sent an investigator who found it was Amazon's fault. And at first, the agency issued four citations, a fine of $28,000. But then Indiana's OSHA director called Amazon and explained to them how to shift the blame onto Terry rather than it falling on the company. There were political considerations to take into account. The state was hoping to get Amazon's HQ2 site. A year after Terry's death, the state deleted the citations. And the follow-up by Evans only gets worse. In 2020, he got internal safety reports and weekly injury numbers from 150 warehouses spanning the years of 2016 to 2019. Here's what he found. 
Amazon often points to the tens of millions of dollars it has invested to enhance safety practices, he writes. He goes on. Yet Amazon's injury rates have gone up for each of the past four years, the internal data shows. Evans finds that injury rates at roboticized warehouses are still highest, and robots mean higher productivity rates for workers, more isolation, more repetitive motions. So things are getting worse, not better. Now, much to Amazon's chagrin, there's a new report out on injuries at the warehouses, just in time for Prime Day. This time, the report is by the Strategic Organizing Center, a union effort. This report looks at workplace safety data reported to OSHA from 2017 to 2020. One key finding is that Amazon workers are not only injured more frequently than in non-Amazon warehouses, they are also injured more severely. Workers forced to take time off for injuries were absent for an average of 46.3 days, a week longer than the average across the warehouse industry. Now, Amazon does instruct workers on the safe way to move their bodies and handle equipment, but workers frequently tell me that these instructions are a joke, as it's understood that they have to violate these rules to keep up with the rate, even if Amazon makes them sign paperwork saying they'll follow the safety rules. Indeed, one of this episode's guests just reported in Vice News that Amazon advises workers to think of themselves as, quote, industrial athletes. The company now claims the pamphlet that used this term was mistakenly distributed, though workers say it was available on site for months, so that seems pretty unlikely. And that's a good transition to introducing our guests for this week. But first, I have to add a brief thank you to everyone who has checked out the show so far and is listening right now. I really appreciate it, and I'm very excited for the episodes we have planned. We have one coming up soon on warehouse work, as told largely in the words of workers themselves, with some of the audio recorded inside one of the warehouses. I'm working on an episode on Amazon workers in Europe and the particular challenges and also opportunities of them having unions, um, as well as the necessity of international organizing, organizing across borders. There will be one on the capitalist state in the Amazon HQ2 fight. These are time-consuming episodes. There are several guests, there are clips, there are notes, there's research. Which means that this is my time to pitch to you to subscribe at patreon.com backslash primedpodcast. The way to keep all these episodes free is that people who can pay for them do so. As of this recording, we have 34 patrons. Thank you to those who've subscribed so far. And also, I know we have a lot more listeners than that. So if you can do so, please subscribe at patreon.com backslash primed podcast. And if you do so, you'll get extra content there. I'm producing research notes, show notes for each episode, which are sort of like annotated bibliographies or blog posts taking us through some of the sources that me and the guests draw on. There will also be video of some of the interviews I'm doing with guests. Okay, now to this week's guests. As I mentioned, one of them is a reporter. That's Edward Angueso Jr., a staff writer at Vice News' Motherboard, where he writes about Silicon Valley and the gig economy. The other guest is Jathan Sadowski, who is the author of Too Smart, which is a book on the political economy of digital capitalism. 
Together, Ed and Jathan host the podcast This Machine Kills, which is a great show about technology and political economy. I'll plug the show's Patreon, too. You can find that at patreon.com backslash thismachinekills. TMK happens to be one of the few podcasts I listen to regularly, so I'm thrilled to have Ed and Jathan on the show for an early episode. In this one, we open the books and take a look at Amazon's finances and business model. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Ed, Jathan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Really great to be here. Um, so this is a big topic, um, and I think one way in is something that a f- that we sort of discussed before we started recording, which is Jeff Bezos's recent letter to shareholders. So he wrote this a couple weeks ago. It's his last letter to shareholders as CEO. He's stepping down to be replaced by Andy Jassy. Um, and there's a very strange section early on in the letter um, under the subtitle, Create More Than You Consume. Um, And in that, Jeff Bezos tries to sort of estimate how much value creation Amazon has given the world in 2020. Um, He talks about both how much value it created for share owners in 2020. So he looks at um, how much if it was owned by one person that owner would have earned in 2020, which is around $21 billion. Um, And then he goes on into weirder territory. He starts talking about how much time Amazon saves its customers. Um, he estimates, you know, that if an hour is worth uh, $10 and a trip to Amazon saves a person per year around 75 hours compared to trips to physical retail locations, you know, he starts doing math about how much money they're saving and then how much value is being created through that. Um, and he does this for, you know, every sort of sh- stakeholder for the company. So that includes the workers as well, which we can talk about that too, what he talks about there. Um, But I was very confused by this. Um, This was sort of like ideology mainlined into my brain and I started short circuiting a little bit. Um, So what can one of you or both of you explain to me what he's talking about? He ultimately decides that Amazon has created $301 billion of value this year. Yeah, I I love I love this section of the letter because it's like it's it is it's an ideological move and it's like you know there's a lot of bullshit. I only saw one outlet correctly address it. Uh, it was like the information in like a briefing, a newsletter briefing they had, and their analysis or their take was that the number doesn't make sense. For example, Bezos says that his company created twenty one billion dollars uh, in value for share owners because he uses the net income. But the market cap increased by six hundred seventy-nine billion, right? But it probably doesn't. It's probably not a good look if you're if you're bragging that you made a trillion dollars in value, but your workers <laughs> most of that's not going to the workers, right? Um, and then the value creation for the employees, I think, is a really interesting one and probably the one that we can, you know, dive into uh, off the top because the there it's arguing that because we pay them we're creating value instead of like we're using them to do a lot of a lot of incredible this this joker fied me this joker fied me i was i was reading this and i did not expect to lose my mind by like page three uh but yeah i mean what ed's saying right like so he reframes the wages that amazon paid to employees which in 2020 was 91 billion dollars as value created by Amazon, not as value created by the workers who created that value, but as value created by Amazon because they paid wages to employees. It's, It's like, 
I mean, we we are witnessing like the math of capital right now. This is like the sacred uh, geometry of capital. <laughs> Hermetic text <laughs> yeah. right here. <laughs> While reading this, I was like, like taking notes on it and stuff. And I was joking that like we're we're witnessing Bezos like trying to compose an anti-labor theory of value, where it's like all labor is actually created by capital. Um, and all you need to do is have like really good mathematics and like clever accounting to show that uh, Amazon is actually creating value for every every single person that it touches. Right, which is how he starts the section. He says if a business isn't creating value for those it touches, even if it appears successful on the surface, it isn't long for this world. It's on the way out. And he's yeah, the section, I mean, he equates the value created for shareholders, for third party sellers, for people who use Amazon Web Services, and then for the workers as all sort of parts of this whole. And he just adds them up in a math equation at the end. He also like does this weird, this like trick throughout where like you're talking about these math equations, right? Where he says, so, you know, so we, so that we can get a dollar figure, let's value the time savings at $10 per hour, which is conservative, right? And so then he goes on to be like, you know, if we value the time at, of of a of an average Amazon Prime member, which there's 200 million uh, Amazon Prime members at $10 an hour, and then we subtract the cost of Prime, that gives you a value creation of $630 per Prime member. That's in just time saved alone. That's not like you know the reduced price of shipping or the cost of goods, right? But he plays this trick of like, let's just be conservative, right? I'm just giving you the conservative numbers and those numbers are still absurd i mean it's very funny it's like you can't afford not to be a prime member you know buy now save now it's it's an incredible sales pitch (laughs) yeah no i I think if everybody became a prime citizen then you know the world would be a better place right next day shipping uh you know could be integrated to the post office there's there's um there's all sorts of value i think basil is also hinting at and it's it's a little weird to also see for example like uh, calculation he did uh, where he says, you know, if only consumers, effectively saying if only consumers could use Amazon all the time, even though they already use Amazon all the time, right? Like most people who are shopping online, about half of all the searches start on Amazon, right? It accounts for like 40% of all of the online market sales. It already, it, these, these calculations, I think, underestimate that um, and also wipe away the, I don't know, value destruction that goes on because Amazon just outright steals uh, technology, uh, steals technology through AWS from clients, uh, can destroy vendors by you know, arbitrary changes that happen on the, on the e-commerce platform that it owns, um, and uses its monopoly, monopsony power because it's the only buyer of these services from the vendors, and because it's the only provider in many instances of like labor or of jobs in other places, um, or you know, goods or services to suppress wages, suppress prices, and in one way or another, uh, you know, hoard or concentrate as much of uh, the value that's being created into its own pockets, right, and its own books. Mm. I mean, this is how we're going to reach socialism, right? Like, eventually, Amazon will create so much value for every Prime member that you won't have to work. You will just be able to live off of the value that Amazon is creating for you and then benevolently uh, bestowing upon you uh, as, as like, a right for being an Amazon Prime citizen. Right. Just don't go outside. Stay home. Read the letters and give thanks every year and consume 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 and you won't have to order right 
Because uh, does aren't they working on that button now? Or they still have that button, right, where you don't actually have to order anything. You just press it like once a week, and it will order stuff that it decides you already needs based on your patterns. No, you won't even have to press the button anymore. They're creating weight sensors. What? So you oh, like God, I forgot you about put this. your you put your goods on a on an Amazon weight sensor, <laughs> and then it notices when you're getting low on toilet paper or granola bars or whatever it is, and it just automatically sends you more. You have to break those if you see them. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> I was gonna say I think this actually gets at um, something that comes at the end of that section, which I found really interesting and and perhaps the most revealing thing is that he says in the letter, and this val quote, and this value creation is not a zero-sum game. It is not just moving money from one pocket to another. Draw the box big around all of society, and you'll find that invention is the root of all real value creation. And value created is best thought of as a metric for innovation. So, I, I mean, again... The, this does you can't you can't try to make this make sense because it doesn't make any sense but it shows you like the logic um and the like the legitimacy uh game that bezos is trying to play with amazon and wrapping that into things like this you know amazon weight sensor that does automatic ordering things like the ring camera and alexa right all these things that make amazon a like quote-unquote innovative um, company he's like trying to intimately tie that to this is where this is the metric that we have to use to judge value creation in society again it's like a, it's an anti-labor theory of value nowhere in there is the the actual work um, that people do the surplus value that labor creates and is then expropriated by bezos it's all completely flipped on its head in innovation is where the real value comes and amazon is the real innovator in society right and i mean though this is often i feel like at least in my own life when i'm talking to people who are not obsessed with politics or labor about amazon you know there is a sense that you know everything flows from amazon's ability to speed up this delivery so the innovation is the source of you know Sure, he might be making too much money, but you have to hand it to him. He did come up with a way to get me a package, or you know, faster than anybody else and more reliably. <laughs> um, it's definitely. I mean, that part that you read, Jathan, is completely nuts to me. Um, it's like explodes mm -hmm. my mind to read. Draw a big box around society. <laughs> Um, it's just <laughs> Bezos is just saying we live in a society. <laughs> That's all he's saying. <laughs> And I'm going to own it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to make value for everybody inside of that society. I mean, if you really think about it, it's it's uh, it's heartwarming story about like how far one person will go to destroy other people's lives so that they can provide for everybody. Right. 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 I mean, this is what I say about Bezos is he won't stop until we don't live in a society anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Like earlier, Ed called Amazon rightfully a monopoly and monopsony. And I think that really gets at the ambitions here, right? Uh, it, it, it's not enough. Like, I think that, you know, we all pay a lot of attention to companies like Amazon as monopolies, right? Like they're, they are crushing the competition. Um, they are, you know, uh, ruling over the market in this kind of like autocratic way. Um, but Amazon also 
is very much a monopsony in the sense that it is a, a monopoly buyer. You know, it's a monopoly buyer of goods, right? Uh, it's a monopoly buyer of labor. Um, you know, they, they're, they're going on a huge hiring craze, right? Like they, uh, and, and a lot of third party sellers have to rely on Amazon and they buy product, right? And so this gives them like, like dual ended, uh, like tyrannical power over both sides of the market, supply and demand. Yeah, let's get let's get into some of that because we've now sort of thrown out, I think, a lot of things that are conclusions that are reached after looking at Amazon's model and the effects it has on the world. But like, what are the actual numbers here? So we've seen Bezos's strange sort of back of the napkin um, calculations of value created by innovation or something, but. You know, what were what are Amazon's numbers say for the last year? How does it compare to other big corporations? You know, how much of the market are we talking? Um, so I, I think if we if we look at earnings reports for 2020, then what we see is that Amazon's annual revenue in 2020 was three hundred and eighty six billion dollars. Um, and that's a 38 percent increase from 2019. I mean, to grow 38 percent in the middle of 2020, like a pandemic-induced economic shock for almost everyone else. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really wild. You, and, and from that time period of April 2020 to April 2021, so really, you know, from the start of COVID until now, uh, Amazon collected $26.9 billion in profit. Uh, and, and that is more than the previous three years combined. So if we look at, so from 2017 to 2019, those three years, Amazon collected $24.7 billion in profit. So it made $2.2 billion more in profit last year than those previous three years. I mean, I think that, that those numbers alone tell a massive story. Yeah, I mean, the numbers here, I remember this sort of startling me when the New York Times did a story about the hiring spree early on in the pandemic that Amazon was undergoing. It was very clear that Amazon was doing that, but it hadn't quite been, you know, it's so big that you can't really tell what's happening with Amazon immediately as it happens. Um, But, you know, they hired something like 500,000 people last year. And so now they have 1.3 million people directly employed. And Amazon sort of famously makes use of thir- third party, you know, independent contractors. So the number is actually much higher than that. Right. Um, and that's just, you know, a huge increase. The numbers even in their own you know, letter to shareholders, I think, from Bezos say that they, they've upped their international sales by 60 percent. So it's even more than that overall 38 percent. You know, they've it's a huge increase during this pandemic. Yeah, their international segment, uh, you know, for the first time turned like a positive earning and got a net income, um, which is, you know, a huge growth for them. They've been expanding everywhere. I, you know, there's this one report uh, story in the Financial Times. It was like looking at all the other, um, all the other ex- successes of our uh, favorite tech companies. And Amazon in of itself earned $8.1 billion after taxes, after tax earnings for this quarter or for the you know most recently reported recorder. And that's, how much it has earned in the first 22 years of its existence like it is hard to overstate how amazing for the company this pandemic has been because it's been eager to take advantage of it either through massive hiring right or either through massive expansion of its delivery infrastructure 
or through massive exploitation by like ramping up its uh you know third party independent contractor system which is full of labor violations and safety violations and disregard for anything other than the customer getting their package yeah and 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 those revenues really uh like you know if we look at the like the big the big 5 american tech companies right alphabet amazon apple facebook microsoft that like those kinds posting those kinds of numbers all of those companies are doing that across the board right like the like the real winner of 2020 was big tech with amazon like really leading the leading the pack here but you know i'm uh, like looking at numbers uh the financial times did a really nice um kind of combination right looking at the earnings reports for just like the first three months of, of 2021 so that first quarter and the uh, combined revenue for those five companies jumped 41 percent uh, in these first three months to a combined $322 billion uh, of revenue between five companies in three months. And that, that when we look at like the after-tax earnings, right, um, for, the five t- uh, for those five tech companies, that's a 105% increase from the first quarter of 2020 to a combined after-tax profit of $75 billion, again, between five companies. Yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering numbers. Like, even Wall Street or whatever is surprised by this. And I'm curious what both of your sort of views on the explanation here. I mean, the obvious one, especially for something like Amazon, is people are staying home, right? And so they're ordering more. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, the pandemic wiped out so much of Amazon's whatever competition remained for Amazon as far as brick and mortar stores, you know, were they forced to close or otherwise went out of business. And so, you know, the competition went away and a lot of dollars that might have been spent elsewhere were going to Amazon directly. You know, what else is going on? I, I think definitely, you know, increases in people relying on it um, in the pandemic because of lockdowns avoiding you know brick and mortar stores these are parts of the story as well as amazon also amazon has grown to the point where it no longer has to do the strategy it did for most of its existence where it takes aws earnings and profits and then reinvest them into massive uh loss leading strategies i mean it still does those but it's still it's now able to generate a profit even if it, it can't invest enough money to lose uh money for a quarter at this point um, and I think that a lot of the growth comes all from this massive expansion, right? Constantly building new warehouses, constantly bringing in new delivery drivers, uh, constantly trying to enter new markets, and also uh, using the increasing power it has in one industry or another, you know, whether it's as a publisher, whether it's as a fashion designer, whether it's as a media platform, whether it's as an advertiser to uh, take advantage of vacuums that have emerged in the pandemic and just pour more money into the hole, spend more money in acquiring, spend more money on uh, expanding, spend more money on growing. And that in of itself, now that it has a stronger position or it's consolidated, will you know push it further and further and further, even if consumer demand, you know, goes back to lower levels. Let me hit you with an alternative explanation here. Ed. According to a venture capitalist mm-hmm. quoted in the Financial Times, 
quote, consumers once valued choice, but what they value now is dependability. So actually, oh, it's well. just a shift in <laughs> consumer preferences <laughs> over 2020 <laughs> that have caused uh, these massive record-breaking Wall Street stunning revenues every single quarter. <laughs> it's not material. There's nothing material. <laughs> no. I mean, like the... Like those kinds of explanations really make me laugh because it is like the, these are like highly advanced techniques in the manufacturing of consent, right? It's like, do not look at the actual like material conditions or the business strategies or the cutthroat exploitation or whatever of Amazon. It's actually just a story of consumer preferences as the market always is. Right. There were just too many kinds of cereal and people got fed up and said, I just want one that's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's how we got here today. Um, and you said this about Amazon's general historical tendency about relying on AWS to sort of bail out its retail or other arms of its operation. Can you both or either of you talk a little bit more about that? Like, how is Amazon actually set up? Because I think a lot of people just don't know that much about AWS, for example. So AWS, Amazon Web Services, is basically its cloud computing division which um, has always operated at a pretty high margins, profit margins. Basically, you you know allow a company, allow some uh, client to move either uh, information into the cloud or to rent or borrow or you know one way or another uh, outsource the need for computation out to Amazon's resources and infrastructure, right? And this has grown over time. Uh, as, as cloud computing and cloud services have just grown in general in business-to-business -business interactions, but also as government contractors have become huger, uh, larger co uh, clients for these uh, sorts of services, right? So Amazon has been for the past, you know, decade or so, uh, two decades, uh, been able at one time or another to use the profits from this high-margin business to, to justify loss leading, where it will just spend more money than it makes sense to produce something below cost, so it can undermine competitors, uh, so that it can attract and consolidate market share, and then at a later point raise prices, or at another point increase commission, or at another point uh, leverage you know, this sort of captive audience um, and the gate that's put around them to squeeze more money and value out of them, either as workers or, or as uh, consumers or as clients. Yeah. and and. Going on that as well, right? Like, I think we have to understand that AWS has always been and still really is Amazon's profit engine, right? Because it really is just a kind of like, uh, set it and forget it, right? You, you, they've got the infrastructure here, and that's what it is. It's an infrastructural service, and so you know, Ed, Ed mentioned like you know they've got big government contractors, right? Like famously, they provide uh, like cloud servers and cloud computing to like the CIA, um, but also things like Netflix, right? Like essentially, they are the essential infrastructure of the internet, um, like. AW, like there have been instances in the past where there's been uh, short interruptions of AWS's services and it takes down like half the internet, like half of the web pages on, online just like won't load and stuff because uh, AWS has become so integral uh, infrastructurally to the operations of, um, yeah, like anything that requires data uh, or com computation. And I, I, that by presenting itself as infrastructure, 
it, it it really does. Like Ed said, like it it allows it to operate really um, sustainably and dependably um, at high high margins. Like and even still, even though the uh, you know, so like Amazon's company is broken up into three arms. There's North America International and AWS. Those are like the three divisions of uh, of Amazon. And even still, um, almost half of Amazon's quarterly operating income for the first three months of 2021 came from AWS. That was $4.2 billion. Uh, and, and so... While these other divisions are now like turning big profits and like, you know, they've always been big revenue generators, but now they're starting to actually turn profits. AWS is still uh, holding up like a disproportionate um, like uh, burden here. But but also, I think really interestingly, um, when you dig into their annual report and actually start and, and like look at the numbers, um, advertise, uh, Amazon's advertising business, which in their revenue stream is categorized under other, um, but there's like a footnote in the annual report that says other is predominantly digital advertising. Uh, there am like in these first three months, their advertising business jumped 77% year on year to $6.9 billion dollars. Um, in the first quarter. And so like Amazon is starting to, I mean, they are not like even beginning to rival um, Alphabet or Facebook in terms of advertising. Like those, that is really the duopoly here, but they are starting to get a slice of that pie. And, and, and that's just pure profit. Mm -hmm. And this, both of you have touched on this a little bit that parts of Amazon or even all of Amazon in certain years have not turned any profit. Um, and, you know, that's in other other companies in tech or similar, you know, Uber famously, you know, is com- never turns a profit. And I think that's somewhat confusing um, if you don't sort of keep track of how like finance works um, in, in the United States, especially. How is it that a company like Amazon can be unprofitable or have entire arms that never turn profits and still exist? So here's the thing. It's it's different from Amazon, but Amazon's. Amazon being such a huge example has led to other companies trying to insist that it's different, right? So with Amazon, Amazon has always been cash positive, or at least has been close to cash positive for a long time. But they've also taken the money that they've been positive for and reinvested it and spent it or burned it all, right? In addition to then burning the profits that are generated, you know, or revenues in general generated by AWS. Other companies never get to the cash positive stage and will, as Uber did, right, position themselves as the Amazon of X or the Amazon of Y to obscure the fact that they're never profitable, but to remind people of how, you know, very famously, Amazon for a decade, you know, uh, was unable to uh, beat like Walmart, right, or other large, you know, retailers in terms of profits or margins, and then only to suddenly skyrocket up and up and up and up and up every single quarter, every single year for the past, you know, got and countless amount of years at this point, right? Yeah, and famously, like Amazon has never paid a dividend to share owners, right? Like it never. It never does any of these things that you would expect a company that is profitable or cash positive to do because it just reinvests. It takes money and reinvests it into itself in order to scale and grow and expand. Um, and and I think I think in, uh, like a question of like 
like why can they do that or how can they do that um, is is also the fact that like Bezos has maintained uh, uh, like such a high level of control over Amazon in a way that like almost any public company is not um, and 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 especially like tech companies right like you know if we look at like the top five shareholders I found this really interesting and this is coming from uh, a report on the financialization of tech by a, a Dutch uh, research center called SOMO um, but if you look at the top five shareholders of like the the big kind of uh, American and Chinese tech companies, it's all like the usual suspects of um, like the like asset managers and index funds, right? It's like, you know, Vanguard Group has 2%, BlackRock has 2%, right? And a lot of times, like across the board, like Vanguard Group, BlackRock, State Street, these big asset managers with these like single digit percentage ownerships of the companies are the five are among the top five largest shareholders, except for Je uh, Amazon, where Jeff Bezos has 15% of all shares in Amazon. Um, and, and he was, you know, he, he's stepped down now as CEO, rather he's stepping up to just being executive chairman, right? But for a long time, he was president, CEO, and chairman, as well as the largest single shareholder in Amazon. So it really, it, Amazon is Bezos in a lot of ways, and Bezos is Amazon. Um, and, and he like, you know, and, and he has this single-minded uh, ambition and pursuit and literally nobody can stand in his way. Nobody can outvote him um, what he says goes, which allows them to do things like never pay dividends, um, never have to worry about, uh, you know, convincing share owners that this one, that this business strategy is the right one. He, he just has this like single minded um, power over over uh, Amazon. Right. And so the result is what we see, which is money being pumped into sort of getting more and more of different markets. Right. So, for example, in looking at the numbers recently, you know, part of the big acquisition in the past few years was Amazon buying Whole Foods, um, which seems to my understanding here is it's just a new market for them. And so, you know, you get big fast, as Bezos said, by, you know, having unlimited money to either acquire your sort of competitors. And that's how you jump into a market. Um, or otherwise just sort of plow money and resources in until all of a sudden you've sort of embedded yourself like in the marrow of a society, which is definitely how Amazon feels, both the web services as well as the sort of retail arm and, and people ordering goods from the website. Absolutely. And and one of the things that I found like while like digging through the annual report and like slowly, you know, losing my mind while doing it, um, but like really actually paying attention to the numbers and the little footnotes buried in the report is that like uh, Amazon, you know, in the report, they say, quote, during 2020, we acquired certain companies for an for an aggregate purchase price of one point two billion dollars. The primary reason for all acquisitions was to acquire technologies and know how to enable Amazon to serve customers more effectively. Now, this is compared to in, in 2019, they spent three hundred and fifteen million dollars on acquisitions of various companies. And so we can see as well in 2020, right? Like like they like 
on unnamed companies, right? I mean, who amongst us didn't spend over a billion dollars in 2020 acquiring various unnamed companies for various purposes? Yeah, for reasons <laughs> unknown. Look, you know, it's just a little footnote. <laughs> <laughs> well, to serve customers more efficiently, right? This is this is Amazon's first principle as Earth's most customer-centric company uh, is their customer obsession rather than competitor focus, uh, which, <laughs> I mean, I, I find that really funny as well right like that like you know at the beginning of the annual report and at all of the, the annual reports and all over their website and their mission statement and stuff they set out these four uh principles and they constantly call themselves yeah like earth's most customer-centric company earth's most uh earth's safest employer earth's this earth's that like it's a weird uh alien tick of bezos as well to be uh-huh. like we are <laughs> we are earth's most customer-centric company <laughs> well he's part of the purchasing last year was just companies on other planets and that's why it's yeah, right, uh, right. not being discussed right now <laughs> so he has to specify i am the king of the third rock from the sun <laughs> earth <laughs> i mean this this is this is far way far from talking about the finances of the company. But I mean, Bezos sort of famously has always said he's interested in space travel and that everything is sort of a sideshow. You know, I was reading, I think it was Brad Stone's. Now I have to say first book because he has a new book coming out about Amazon. Um, but I remember when I read it, he, he sort of talks to or otherwise quotes Bezos's high school girlfriend who says that like Jeff only wanted to get rich because he wants to explore space. And he always said that the only way to do that would be to get super wealthy. Um, and, you know, Bezos and explain why he's stepping down, quote unquote, he said, you know, he's going to focus on his uh, rocket ship company or whatever. He's trying to go home. Um, <laughs> E.T. phone home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when when most kids are obsessed with space, they like they want to join NASA or they want to be an astronaut. They don't want to single mindedly like own space. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. So, so Jathan, before this episode, I was reading that same report um, about the financialization of big tech. And they, I think it's in that report they sort of lay out that the model is monopoly rents, platformization, and financialization. And, I th- and, you know, they go through various examples and how each of sort of the big tech companies differ in certain ways. You know, Amazon is slightly less, um, has slightly lower financial assets to total assets than certain other tech companies, though it's still higher than, you know, a lot of companies in other sectors. Um, But I think this model, you know, when you take a step back and say that, you know, this is a fancy way of sort of saying that these companies' models are mostly about just sort of inserting themselves as infrastructure, right, into, you know, not just a country, but the whole planet, um, several planets, you know, barring uh, someone stopping Bezos. Um, But, you know, like, so if that's really the model for me, you know, I write about labor. I talk to workers all the time, especially workers at Amazon. You know, the one question that comes to mind is like, what does that actually mean for working conditions and labor in general? You know, what is this focus on, you know, the value as construed by Bezos and by Amazon and sort of the business models reliance on, say, like speed and flexibility? You know, where does that lead, at, at least from where both of you are sitting, as far as your sort of understanding of other companies in this in this sector? Yeah, you know, I think to add on to that labor point, you know, one thing to think about, like that shareholder letter where he acknowledges, you know, or where he tries to say, look, you know, uh, you can use the bathroom and it doesn't impact performance. 
But yeah, sometimes people get hurt when they are working on the job. So instead of lessening the burden of uh, work that any of them have to do, they're going to come up with an algorithm that will smartly manage the type of work that they're doing so that it's leg day one day and arm day the next day. You know, like this is, I think, also synonymous with like, you know, for delivery drivers, right? When delivery drivers have unsafe working conditions because of the demands put on them by the work, what's the solution by Bezos? It's to put surveillance cameras or almost put surveillance cameras inside of the cars instead of reducing the load of work that they have to do. I think it's just going to mean the, you know, certain technologies are going to be used to amplify the way that people are expected to perform at, you know, superhuman levels. Um, and also the ability to punish them if they don't work at those levels, right? Because the goal or the goal has been for him to like, you know, be now a safe workplace, right? And to be a safe workplace, the obvious solution is to not do as much work because it's just fun, it's just unsafe work, right? Or to make working conditions safer by lessening the type of uh, the the burden of the work, but no, we're just gonna you know use more technical implements to increase the amount of work everyone can do, um, and maybe minimize the type of injuries they get over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about it as well, and you know, it's it's like it's the distinctions that like Marx makes in Capital Volume One, right, between things like um, dead labor and living labor, right, and like uh, you know, dead labor being the the kind of the machinery. Uh, and the organization, right? And, and you know, Marx talks about how living labor becomes, um, you know, despotically controlled and, uh, and, and tethered to this dead labor. And I think in, in a lot of ways, right, like Bezos is, <laughs> I, I have this like running bit on Twitter where like I will like, like screenshot passages from from Marx and be like, damn, wild that Marx was writing like a biography or a detailed psychic profile of Jeff Bezos, you know, like 250 years ago or whatever. Um, but I think like in a lot of ways, uh, like, you know, we've joked before on on our podcast that it's like, you know, like like the 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 beta virgin businessman reads like Sun Zhu's Art of War, but the the Chad Alpha businessman reads Capital Volume One and takes that <laughs> as a business manual um, for how to run their operations. And like I really feel like that's that is Yo know, Bezos without knowing that's what he's doing. Um, he is in a lot of ways like this perfect embodiment of of capital, right? Like Marx wrote that, you know, quote, except as personified capital, the capitalist has no historical value and no right to historical existence. His soul is the soul of capital. And and that that really is Bezos, right? His soul is the soul of capital. Um, and similarly, right, like we've got this distinction between dead labor and living labor, which is something that makes Amazon such a, a heavy corporation, right? In the sense that they actually own a lot of physical assets and they really do have these ambitions to be this like, uh, universal intermediary, this ubiquitous infrastructure of our lives, of the economy, of society. Um, 
And then wrapped up in that as well is this distinction of like absolute surplus value versus relative surplus value, right? Um, you know, and, and like absolute surplus value, right? You, you just make workers work longer hours so you can get more surplus value from them. Relative surplus value, you extract more value out of workers for the number of hours that they've worked. Amazon is like, why not both, right? Why, why not just, why not get that absolute and that relative surplus value? Um, and I think we can see that in every single move that Amazon makes, um, whether it's in the warehouses, right, whether it's the delivery drivers, the speed ups, the algorithmic management, the, all of these things that, you know, have been reported on, um, you know, quite extensively uh, over the last, you know, six months or so, especially, uh, all of that is a way of just extracting more and more of that value so amazon and bezos can then turn around and be like this is all value we created at the same time i i i also do want to go off and before i forget like you know we've talked about uh this growth that amazon has done over over 2020 but there's also been a lot they also acquired a lot of debt in 2020 as well um so like Amazon's total debt grew from $393 million to $52 billion in the decade leading up to 2019. But then in 2020, um, they capitalized on the economic shock of the pandemic by raising $10 billion of debt through bonds. Um, but, but these bonds were secured with like the lowest borrowing cost ever. Um, they paid as little as 0.4% interest for three-year bonds. The Financial Times described this as, quote, the cheapest ever borrowing cost in the U.S. Uh, corporate bond market. So, I mean, I think this gets at something as well. That, Like, say what you will about Amazon, but they absolutely know how to buy low, um, whether that's debt at record low rates, labor in a depression level economy where it's really cheap to hire, you know, half a million people, um, or all these acquisitions that they did during the pandemic, right? Where again, it's really cheap to acquire all of these companies that are, um, you know, probably in the in the red and they're going, you know, they're, they're going under, right? So, so get it while it's hot. It's a fire sale. Um, like, I, I think this also speaks to uh, Amazon's business acumen in a really fun, like a fundamental sense, right? Of just like they buy low and sell high. Yeah. Can you can you spell out why they would you know acquire so much debt over the past year? Interest rates are never going up again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, like yeah like this is this is the zero uh, percent interest rate problem right i mean this is what has fueled um a lot of like the growth of the tech sector um and all of this like venture capital and all of these like massive valuations and all these really dumb startups that are like how does that thing have a five billion dollar valuation right uh, and it's largely because money is free right now it's like it is just free to borrow money if you are a capitalist right uh it, and and so it's like why not why not get uh why not leverage your position in the economy 
um, to get $10 billion of debt at an at a interest rate that is essentially zero so that you can then just like pump that back into further expansion, um, further consolidation of your market position, right? Like if the economy starts, quote unquote, like getting back to normal, um, Amazon wants to make sure that they take advantage of this abnormal time so that they don't uh, so that they don't lose out on those record-breaking quarterly earnings, you know, like I think they're reaching their third consecutive um, quarter of a hundred of a hundred billion dollar plus revenues, um, right? So they want to make sure that that keeps going, right? They they never want to go down, and a way of doing that is getting all this really cheap money so that they can further consolidate their position. Yeah, it, acceler it accelerates their development, right? I mean, we saw something similar with Netflix, right? Netflix is another a good example of another company, a large, you know, uh, technology firm that borrows incredible amounts of money, right? Because it's borrowing against the idea that in the future it will meet these stupendous projections for growth and demand, and so it's just financing it now, so that and and it will pay them back, uh, you know, later with uh, near zero interest rates. Um, and similarly, you know, as everything what Jason said with uh, Amazon is true there. It's true for a lot of these companies. Why not get like a ten billion dollar loan when you already you already make ten billion dollars, right? If wor worst case scenario, you can pay it back. But best case scenario, in fact, what happens every single time is you just use it to accelerate your expansion plan by one year, two year, five years, ten years. You know. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to ask both of you, since you like myself, uh, spend all of your time thinking about certain parts of the tech sector, especially, is you know there are some obvious parts to the answer to this question, but why do these companies flourish in the United States? You know, like this this particular model, it's not that there aren't huge tech companies in other countries, obviously, uh, but this sort of like debt financing, VC backed, you know, sort of massive companies. I think, you know, tech in general has obviously flourished over the past you know couple decades. And, you know, what are the set of conditions in the United States that are sort of key in creating these companies? I mean, we're not allowed to say it's corruption, but it is, you know, like corruption is the reason why like the venture why the capital gains tax, for example, in California decades ago was raised, was cut so low that venture capital became a realistic venture, right? Where it would make more sense. You'd be able to hoard or accumulate enough capital to just throw it at firms that you thought were going to one day, you know, 10x, 20x, you know, 50x your uh, investment. Um, and give you that you know give you that return. Um, part of it is also because in this country uh, there's been incredibly successful lobbying efforts at undermining uh, efforts to tax capital, right? To reduce the amount of capital that can be hoarded, uh, to get rid of taxes on you know to re to basically reduce the points at which a transaction can be taxed, uh, uh, hoarding of wealth can be taxed, and capital flows can be obscured or impeded, right? You have highly liberalized capital flows and highly immobile you know, labor in this country, more so than I think most of the countries in the West, right, where you have labor movements and you know some degree of economic integration on the continent of Europe, right, as an example. So there could, you know, there's some mobility amongst workers and capital is a little bit, you know, held in a, it's a slightly tighter or closer, you know, a reach. But in the United States, it's just, it's just through and through, through and through a business run society where a lot of the laws and regulations get out of the way for capital flows and for corporations that are interested in hoarding capital or in making ridiculous 
gambles or bets or risking other people's money so that they can see a massive return, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, this makes me think as well of uh, just like a, like a few days ago, Bloomberg had the headline that said, uh, Biden tax rule would rip billions from big fortunes at death. <laughs> Right. And, this, and the, the deck there of that piece is, you know, Bezos's heirs, uh, heirs could face tax bill of more than thirty six billion dollars. Right. I mean, even that choice of like the active verb there. Right. It would rip billions from big fortunes. Right. Like that's <laughs> called taxing. That's the purpose of taxing. <laughs> but like, you know, you've got this uh, this ideological consensus right now that even something like like a, a, a marginal increase in capital's gains or like inheritance tax or whatever um, is is doing some kind of violence to uh, to the innovators and the creators and the makers in society. I read this paper that, Jathan, you sent before this episode, um, an academic paper by Pepper Culpepper, which no offense to this person, but that is a, come on, that's a ridiculous <laughs> name. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and Kathleen Thelen, um, it's called, Are We All Amazon Primed? Consumers and the Politics of Platform Power. Um, it was published in 2019. Um, and they make an argument in this paper that you know, the sort of flip side of this, there's the cr conditions that sort of create and foster and, and sort of back companies like Amazon. But then there's Amazon's political strategies. So they look at the political strategies of, I think, platform companies like Amazon, but also like, you know, Uber, for example, the, the ride sharing companies um, where they're, they sort of make this argument that there are real political implications here and how ex how power is exercised by these companies in that there's a coalition where they appeal directly to consumers, right? They have a much closer relationship than, say, the railroads or steel companies, you know, or even Ford had to its customer base. Um, and, you know, the first thing that came to mind, though I don't know if they actually talk about it in this paper, I guess it was before this time, um, was what happened with Prop 22 in California, where the ride-sharing companies, you know, were directly appealing to the voters and sort of even through the app sort of pushing their you know, vote say, you know, that what they wanted voters to side with them on this on this law um, and and also making the point that your life will be inconvenienced if this law, you know, if if drivers are considered employees, if this law actually restricts us. Um, and they make the point that these companies tend to do that because they have this closer relationship and it scares politicians, right, who don't want to go against their own um, sort of constituents. And it's interesting. I don't know how much I really think that this is something that's unique necessarily with Amazon, but it does remind me of what Amazon has done, especially in you know the past year around sort of presenting itself, you know, um, embarrassingly, one of their I forget now who it was, one of their higher ups said they're the Bernie Sanders of employees of employers. Um, mm -hmm. But they sort of present themselves as like, look, we have a $15 starting wage. And we want Congress to, you know, force everyone else to catch up to us. We're really progressive. We provide benefits to our workers, so on and so forth. Um, you know, now they're very they're touting that they're leading on climate stuff, whatever that entails, um, often gets very murky very quickly. Um, but there is this sense of sort of appealing and saying, don't let these sort of stick in the muds who are being too down on, you know, our working conditions, you know, get in the way of you having a great life um, thanks to Amazon Prime um, in a way that definitely seemed true. I mean, they talk all the time about their 200 million um, subscribers in this way that, you know, is definitely a direct appeal 
um, and almost like a threat of look how many people we have who are allied with us. Yeah, you know, and I think also part of it is a lot of these companies benefit from structuring uh, themselves in ways where we are insulated from the workplaces, right? I mean, much like in our society, the you know prisons and the criminal justice system is as out of sight, out of mind for people. So you don't get to see the harm that it you know causes on people. The the production system of a lot of these firms, especially Amazon, is hidden from people, so they don't really get to see the harm or also know what it what those claims mean in context. Like fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage at Amazon sounds nice, but union jobs doing the same work earn double that. You know, and that is that's partly because Amazon is able to saturate national media markets with its own ads, about $15 minimum wages. It's been doing that for about a year at this on and off at this point. But that's also because I think also people just in general don't know a lot about what the jobs are or aren't um, beyond reports about working conditions that trickle down in advertisements by these firms. And that results in as we see, or as we saw the other day, a lot of the media spectacles that they do combating those arguments about the working place conditions, because that's, you know, those are the really things that those are the main things that people get about uh, Amazon. Uh, what is it, you know, hell stories about its working conditions, um, and then Amazon's own advertisements, and to have stories playing for days and days and days about how everyone has to shin bags and piss and bottles, um, you know, doesn't exactly play to the ad that comes on a second after that segment saying Amazon is one of the most generous employers in the country. We've employed over a million and a half people directly. We pay them a $15 minimum wage. We have aggressive stock vesting options in healthcare and workers comp and all this. So you should work for us. Yeah, I, I really like this paper and I think it is dead on. And, and like, you know, while this like building a really direct, intimate relationship with your consumers is not unique to Amazon, it's unique to the kind of sector of platform capitalism that Amazon is, you know, a vanguard of and really leading the pack here. And it does, you know, like Ed was just saying, right, it alienates us from like the exploitative labor conditions uh, and extractive business practices. Um, but it also does this like uh, this this kind of interesting move as well, where on one hand it creates it, it turns consumers themselves into a political block, uh, right? Where like uh, and, and we can see this with like Prop Twenty Two, and we can see that you know not only not only Prop Twenty Two, but like you know the uh, the kind of like lobbying uh, and like uh, regulatory entrepreneurship, as it's been called, that like Uber and the and Airbnb and these gig companies have done in the past, which is you know they they like create these astroturf kind of movements, right? They like mobilize their their user base um, to fight against any kind of regulation that might prevent that service from operating in a particular city. But, it, you know, uh, the, the paper, you know, has, a, has a, a really great line here where they say, right, like, who wants to be the politician who shuts down my access to cheap consumer goods delivered the next day through Amazon Prime, right? And, and they go on and talk about how, like, uh, you know, they, they say, quote, the power these companies wield operates not through politicians' fear of the pain that these firms can visit upon the economy so much as the anticipated political fallout to which overeager regulators would expose themselves by messing with the infrastructure of people's lives. And that gets back to that point of, 
you know, these companies have become infrastructural, right? They, they own and operate the services that we rely on every day, whether that's, you know, your Amazon Prime or that's your Uber Eats or that's, you know, whatever, right? Like, like we rely on these every day, not, not by accident, right? That's because like the conditions have been set where that's the only option available to us. There's no public infrastructure. Public services have been gutted, right? Public governance is has become defanged. And so we have to rely on uh, these private infrastructures to provide those services. And, you know, and, and, and yeah, you can see how people would be like, don't take that away from me. Because, and the, the implicit thing here is you're not providing me with an alternative. Um, you just want to take away my one only option um, without providing me with a better option. And, uh, you know, and I like my Amazon Prime. I like my Uber Eats. I think that's also something we're going to start seeing, you know, conflict uh, along the lines of, you know, some of the really the main antitrust remedies that would solve this situation are structural separate is structural separation, right? Banning. Amazon from operating at two different points of some market, right? As a supplier, you know, um, and as a buyer of a, a good or service or, you know, labor, you know, what have you. Like Amazon can't both have uh, vendors on an e-commerce platform and also compete with them, right? Amazon can't both produce and distribute uh, and create uh, media content. You know, this, and I think that these are the moves that have to happen to put hard, bright lines in the economy about what a firm is allowed and not allowed to do. But doing that will result in short term disruptions uh, of uh, these services intentionally. I think also because there's a, you know, as Jathan laid out, right, and as we've all been talking about, people have come to depend on these because they've undermined every other alternative and because there's no public infrastructure in this country, really any country, for these sorts of things. It's just the market. The market is supposed to do it, and they have a huge share of the market share. So I think it's also been a smart move by them, you know. It's been a, it's been a really smart move by them because they have already preempted, like, responses to the main um, – you know, remedy to this problem, which is banning them from just operating in certain areas. Some might say it's a, a too smart move. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle plug. <laughs> and, this is actually, Jathan, you won't believe that I, this is a perfect transition. And then I did want to ask you about a quote from your book, um, from too smart about calling this the age of Amazon. Um, you know, I, I'm prone to saying that, but I know it's because I spend so much time paying attention to Amazon and talking to people who work at Amazon. So can you sort of explain what your your case is there? I mean, you're welcome to quote your own book if you want to. <laughs> yeah. So, right. Th this is like one of from from the beginning of, of uh, chapter two of the book where I talk about how, you know, like when, when systems of production and distribution um, do have these like huge effects on how people live and how they work, all the things that we've just laid out, right? Like we tend to name these like capitalist periods or epochs after them, right? So like we, I think people are well aware of like Fordism, right? Uh, and it's because like you know, the Ford Motor Systems, you know, mass, uh, like their, their system of mass production and mass consumption was really transformational, right? And we even call the period after that post-Fordism because it's just like, it's a flow-on effect of the, uh, of changes from Fordism. But I, I, I don't, you know, 
I, I argue in the book that it's not a stretch to say that in the future, the current period might be known as Amazonian. But that wasn't an argument I like set out to make in the book. That was something that I like, uh, that was like an inductive conclusion, right? Because like, as I was researching the book, which looks at, you know, the operations of digital capitalism, um, the, the, you know, the use of all these like various smart technologies in our, in our lives, in our homes, in our cities, you know, all these different spaces and places and sectors in society. I kept running up against Amazon at every single turn, right? Uh, uh, like uh, all of my research across all of these different industries and sectors and parts of our lives, Amazon was there. Amazon was doing something that was leading the pack or that was like really influential or really transformative transformational um and so that like that conclusion while it comes at the beginning of the book was one that i reached at after like having researched the book i was like holy shit like you know i i didn't mean to write a book about amazon but like low-key my book is a book about amazon um because they they have become they, their tendrils are everywhere right like they are the vampire squid that's attached to our face right um and 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 uh and, you know, I think that really bears out when we start trying to even conceive of it, it's really like we know Amazon is big, right? Like we're like, yeah, Amazon is big, but it's really hard to hold it, hold the whole company in your mind at once because we haven't even touched. You know, we, we mentioned that they acquired Whole Foods, right? We haven't even touched on their like experimental Amazon Go stores, right? Which are these like, you know, it's meant to be this like highly frictionless, like supremely convenient um, convenience store experience, you know, user experience, um, you know, all automated, all machine vision, et cetera. We haven't even touched on Ring, right? The, the surveillance company that it acquired and that now has partnerships with over 1,500 um, policing departments across the United States, right? Like there, there are so many things on Amazon that we haven't even touched on um, because they are they are big. But it's not only that they are big; they really are like this this blanket that has been draped across all of society, right? They they are a heavy corporation in the in the truest sense, in the sense that they 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 own and operate a lot of machinery a lot of devices a lot of infrastructure but that all feeds back into into the hive mind um into bezos's big giant brain right um and all feed into those ambitions of like world domination i don't think it's like uh too much of a uh, an exaggeration to say that that you know interstellar domination is what amazon is is that's that's the ambitions here yeah, I think that's a good way to wrap up this conversation. Also, a very um, effective way of communicating why I started this podcast um, is because, you know, all of us constantly pay attention to the news about like Amazon. And it's just for, it's just endless. And it seems like it's impossible to keep track of. So um, hopefully this project can help people get a little bit more of a digestible way of getting a sense of this. But we'll see. It's early. So. Um, I just want to, you know, it, ask in closing if there's anything else about this very broad subject that we didn't get to that either of you wanted to talk about or touch on. I mean, Jathan mentioned that there's entire segments of the company that we haven't gotten to. But, you know, I think, you know, just in a sense of any more sort of core things to know about sort of how Amazon operates or what people should expect, you know, going forward. 
Yeah, I think with Amazon, the key thing people should always keep in mind is, you know, when people talk about Amazon, they talk about how productive it is, how, how you know, it provides all these things on time, how it's uh, everywhere, and, you know, it's everywhere, everything store, whatever. Um, but And in the public, those narratives usually are used to then quickly say, well, you know, your convenience is in opposition to the production, right? But the reality, as we've talked about here, is that Amazon can do all those things because it's stealing away time and energy and labor from its workers and forcing them to do all sorts of ridiculous things, right? And doing that also to the vendors and to the clients um, and to a whole array of people. So we should always be thinking about, you know, when it comes to Amazon, are these things that uh, we need or uh, don't need in terms of like, if we were to create like a production infrastructure, delivery infrastructure and all that, that would be more ethical, right? And more uh, amenable to the humans. Like what are the real limits to it? Because it may be the case, and probably is the case, right? That you can't have all the things that we do have and enjoy with Amazon in a real, you know, humane system. And figuring out how to talk about that also and get and, and undermine this whole politics of convenience and also the, the, the way that convenience is used as a way to suppress discussion is like important you know um and so yeah just constantly think about how much you hate amazon and why <laughs> and why it's exploited <laughs> that's key yeah you know? as as ed says keep your hatred pure exactly <laughs> <laughs> and i think like yeah just building on what ed said as well um you know i i think that has been one of the you know the greatest tricks that the devil of amazon has played on us is that uh, convincing us that you know these like circuits of production and circulation and consumption um, can only happen uh, through conditions that Amazon has created, and that that's simply not the case, right? There, uh, you know, warehouse jobs do not have to look like they do at Amazon warehouses. Historically, they haven't, right? Um, logistics doesn't have to look like the way that Amazon has organized it, right? Like, but but what they have done um, through this, you know, dual monopoly monopsony uh, strategy is make that, you know, in the in the very like Margaret Thatcherian kind of way, right, saying there is no alternative. Um, but uh, that, that, that is simply not the case at all, um, historically or presently. But, and this gets to, you know, that paper by Culpepper and Thalen that we were talking about, where uh, that, that, that kind of ideology of convenience um, has turned into a political strategy of power um, that, you know, that Amazon wields very effectively. And yeah, I, I mean, I think we just constantly have to keep that in mind that this is the Amazonian model, but that doesn't mean it's the only model. Mm -hmm. um, and and I also I just want to say as well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I know Ed and I are both extremely excited that you are doing this podcast. Uh -huh. I think it's like highly necessary. Um, and I think you are uh, the perfect person to be doing it. And so we're, we're, we're both really excited to see um, how you how you do help us all keep this entire behemoth in our mind at once and try to understand it. Your reporting's always been great on Amazon. So really like honored to come on and talk with you about this and shoot the shit about why Amazon is uh, Earth's uh, most hated company, right?
Thanks. Thanks so much, guys. And I'm I'm definitely going to have to devote a wall of my apartment to, you know, like newspaper clippings and rubber bands and mm-hmm. arrows being yeah. drawn in red ink. Oh, um, I'll, one day I'll show you all mine for mm-hmm. a SoftBank and uh, Uber. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be helpful. Ed. Um, well, thank you both so much. And to people um, who have been listening to this episode, I just want to thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Um, this has been primed. Uh, with Ed and Jathan, my two guests this week, who um, I introduced at the start, but I'll just at the end plug that they both host a a podcast on a very similar subject that is great. And um, it's called This Machine Kills. And I am definitely not much of a podcast listener myself, though I guess you shouldn't say that if you host a podcast. (laughs) Um, uh, But I do listen to theirs all the time. And so I just, I really recommend it. Um, So thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. Of course. Thanks for having us.